0: Well, there's the whole LLC thing. We can scrape the top of it because I've been yes. dying to talk about LLCs with Australians and why we should probably not use it all the time. It's not it's not as conducive for an Australian as it is for a domestic. It doesn't exist under federal law. So it's really a creature of state legislation. You know, same thing for S-corporations. These are hybrid entities, an S-corporation as well. There's different types of what I call it, gender changes an S-Corp was a C-Corp that then becomes another corporation. An S-Corp is, is an old pre-LLC, but it is grouped in the same vein as a hybrid as an LLC. So Please. S-Corp is only available to U.S. citizens and U.S. residents, but you can do it through, through a U.S. trust. So now there's been a change, but generally it's still only reserved for U.S. persons. If you're a foreign person and you hold an interest, a foreign company, you can't. It's not possible unless through a trust. Which is more advanced uh, and discussion of how you can do that. But generally, it still remains for U.S. persons. So not advisable for foreign persons. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants. Tax Talks, the
1: podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to another U.S. episode of Text Talks, U.S. number 10. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When would you use an LLC plus a blocker? And where would you place this blocker? Within or outside the U.S.? And when would you just go for a simple C-Corp, so basically use the blocker as your trading entity? These are just some of the questions Marsha Dungog of Withers in San Francisco will discuss with you in this episode.
0: I really want to talk more about the Australian founders, like the Australian company and the the Blocker Corp, because that is a very interesting structure that I don't think achieves as much as everyone outside the U.S. thinks it achieves going to try and, and and wrangle away. Don't do what the Joneses do when you're in the U.S. Don't keep up with the Joneses if you're not U.S. based. We have uh, Australian corporate clients right now that are entering the U.S. market without a U.S. partner. And in fact, their goal of coming here is to find U.S. partners. And we are structuring them for maybe a series financing with the Silicon Valley with a bunch of Silicon Valley investors, or maybe based in Denver. or maybe So you don't need to enter the US market with a US partner at all. You can do it on your own. I think there's been a bunch of Australian, successful Australian corporate businesses that have have come to the US without a US partner. In fact, we've been advising a few of them over the couple of years. It's Mm -hmm. very seldom they come in with a US partner at all. Usually they find a U.S. partner once they're here and then they get a series financing. But the startup is expansion. You don't need a U.S. partner. In fact, it probably would be preferable to start on your own so you can lay out the groundwork and then get a partner to buy into the entity or the business that you've started to build up first prove you're worse and then team up? Yeah, Unless it's an established Australian business already, you know, that wants, that has a U.S. partner that says, hey, let's do your distribution business here in the U.S. or some other kind of, depending on the business they're in. But usually most of the time, the ones we've been advising are really startup companies that are going big or either they went public in Australia. So it really differs. And I think it's, contingent on the industry right in which this business is going to be categorized at so under our hypothetical you have an established australian corporation right so an australia proprietary limited company not a public corp that wants to enter the U.S. market, but has decided to do so using a blocker corporation. And I'm assuming, Heidi, that we're a blocker corporation would be in some sort of other jurisdiction, not the U.S. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a blocker.
1: Really? I was thinking of a Deliver C Corp. Oh, OK. Well, you could do
0: that, too. But it's not much of a blocker because it'll be subject to U.S. taxes. So you could have a blocker corp. Usually the blocker corp would be outside of the United States. And then you can also have a blocker corp inside the U.S. So you can do that both ways. If you want to do the blocker corp as a Delaware C corp, you could do that as well, but it's not the usual way that we would put up the blocker corp.
1: So usually the blocker corp is in the Cayman Islands?
0: Well, it depends. Again, if we're dealing with a bunch of High net worth families, trusts, entities, and everything else. Usually, the blocker corp would be outside the U.S. And then, if we're dealing with an Australian company that's just engaged in, let's say, a startup venture, you could have the blocker corp as a Delaware company. So, what what would you like our hypothetical to go? You want to go with a with a Delaware company, then? Yes, because we can do that. All right, let's yes. do startup. Let's say let's assume that this is for you know we have an Australian. Startup company, right? Let's say they're going to be in tech because I'm based in San Francisco and Silicon Valley is in my backyard. So we do a lot of these transactions and corporate border cross border structurings for our clients. Let's assume they are in the tech industry. They want to go into the US because they know that they want to make it big and be global and they want to do that through a US platform. So what they do is they establish what we call a blocker corporation that's based in Delaware, a C corporation. And then through underneath that, they have a U.S. limited liability company. The other half of the U.S. limited liability company will be owned by a U.S. holding company that is ultimately owned by a U.S. individual or a U.S. shareholder.
1: And can I just make one small change? Yep. So the U.S. Hold Co. that is in U.S. investors' hands, that U.S. Hold Co. owns 80% of the LLC. And the Australian blocker, the uh, c percent. Delaware, is only
0: 20%. Okay. All right. So we'll do that. We'll have... And let's assume that this business is in the tech. So it's not a manufacturing-intensive industry. It's not something that requires immediate manpower you know in terms of labor and employment so not really a lot of people are involved like it's all it's all let's say everything is based in Australia all the operations all the assets are in Australia so really what you've got is a shell company that's a blocker corp right so essentially the parent US parent company of a US LLC so first for first things first this structure works to block right, the potential taxation of an Australian private company by the U.S. by having a U.S.-based blocker corporation. Usually that's based in Delaware. The reason is that what's going to happen is all of the income and gains that are generated from the U.S. activities are theoretically being centralized through the blocker corporation. And that's the blocker corporation that will then be the tax reporting entity from a US tax perspective. So uh, this is a very good entry into the market and a very good exit into the market as well, if it comes time to exit the US market. And the reason is that in the entry, you want to protect the Australian company from US taxation. So you use a, you use a blocker corp based in the US they're in. And on exit, you don't wanna tax, you know, you don't want your capital gain or the sale of, this business to be subject to U.S. taxation. And the best way to do that is to sell the shares of the Blocker Corp. Because the Blocker Corp capital gains will not be taxable in the U.S. And it will not be subject to any U.S. withholding taxes. So it's the cleanest way to
1: enter and exit
0: the U.S. market.
1: And when you say the capital gains of the sale of the C Corp Blocker shares... Mm-hmm. they're not taxed in the US. Is that because the shareholder is an Australian entity or yes. are they not taxed for anybody?
0: No, they're, that's because the shareholder, well, from our perspective, the taxation of C corporation shares or company shares are, are pers, uh, company shares are personal property and therefore the situs of those shares from a capital gain perspective would be the residence of the shareholder and that would be, in this case, the shareholder is Australian. Therefore, it would be taxable in Australia and not the U.S.
1: So if the U.S. investor sells his shares in the whole which holds 80 percent of the LLC, then they would be subject to capital gains tax in the U.S. But because the shares of the blocker that holds 20 percent in the LLC, because the shares in the blocker are held by an overseas entity, Those capital gains are not taxed in the U.S.
0: Absolutely, that's correct. So that works for both. This structure is a good structure for both a U.S. shareholder and an Australian shareholder in terms of entry and in terms of exit. And this creates some mismatches in other situations, right? Whereby, let's say real estate, where in the US will have first taxing rights, and then there would tax the capital gain on the whole 100% of the gain. But then Australia, let's say, because it's an Australian resident, would be only subject to tax on 50%. And then you have the foreign tax credits issues arising. uh, That is
1: another topic for us, Heidi. The issue is that Australia then says you can only claim 50% of the FITO.
0: Absolutely, that's correct.
1: Once the Blocker Corp is set up,
0: right, you are going to enter into this partnership, a US limited liability company. Now, as long as the shareholders of this US LLC, or shall we say members to be technically correct, are US based entities, this would be a very good structure, right? Because we've basically relate, we've saved a lot of US additional taxes arising from, the ownership of US LLC membership interest by a foreign person, which would be the Australian company. So what you've basically done by inserting a Delaware blocker C corporation is you've cut off some a lot of potential international tax issues on the US end that would arise with having a foreign non-resident member of an LLC but since in this situation you have a blocker corp that's a Delaware domestic company we won't have those issues and so the U.S. LLC is the favorite vehicle of a lot of companies that want to enter into different types of financing arrangements in the U.S. for many reasons from a corporate perspective a U.S. LLC is more flexible than a regular C corporation A C corporation from a legal perspective has a lot of corporate formalities. For example, you have to have these board resolutions. You have to have these kinds of like certain types of governance requirements that you need to have. You need to have bylaws. You need to have a bunch of different things that make it very restrictive, right? For a startup company who might want to wheel and deal, as we say, among different investors and have the flexibility to do it really quickly. That being said, an LLC as much as it provides you with a corporate flexibility, will also provide you with some corporate tax or shall we say partnership tax benefits. That depends though on the classification of this LLC from a US tax perspective. As I mentioned before, Heidi, LLCs don't exist under federal law. LLCs are creatures of state legislation. In fact, the first LLC was created or legislated in Wyoming many, many years ago. And then it slowly, because it was such a good structure for the corporate reasons that we were talking about, the other states started to adopt it until now the LLCs in every different state, pick the state you want. And so therefore, what happens is there is a classification that happens at the federal level that has to when they see an LLC. Under our federal entity regulations, if an LLC has two members, it will be subject to default classification as a domestic partnership. Unless of course you want to file an election by filing a form 8832 to have this LLC be treated or classified as a corporation for US tax purposes. Now the states by conforming legislation will then follow the federal tax treatment and this developed over the last decade or so because before it wasn't states can choose to conform or not conform to federal tax laws in fact a lot of states still don't some some states pick and choose what aspects of federal tax law they want to adopt for the state corporate income tax statutes and everything else. So that's when we'll discuss more of that when we get to state legislation. But let's assume the regular, the regular role here is because you're a startup company and you have like first round investors, and you're likely not going to see profits from this company for the first five years. The investors, of course, are in it for in it to win it, as we say, but they also want to maximize on any losses, right, that might be flowing through any preferential rates that might be flowing through through this LLC. So by that logic a partnership classification which is the default classification would be the most advisable at this stage because number one as a partnership and you did note Heidi in our you know correspondence the partnership actually allows a flow through of all the income gains losses and credits to the members to the member investors And I'm not saying shareholders because it's a partnership. So we say maybe member partners. And uh, as a result of that, it becomes more flexible for each investor to make their planning at their level of whether or not they wanna recognize or pay additional US income taxes or less. And because the LLC as a partnership is flexible in terms of the allocation of income gains and losses and credits in any given year, it gives you the flexibility to allocate, let's say for this year, the partner wants more losses on this end, the U.S. hold code than the other blocker corp. So you can allocate this in that way. And of course, I'm doing a very high overview of U.S. partnership taxation, because we have certain rules about allocations of income and gain and credits in a partnership. But generally speaking, you would be able to do that kind of allocation. So that is a very good plus for a partnership structure for an LLC at this level.
1: Attribution of losses, does that only work for U.S. investors or does the attribution of losses also work for foreign investors? I can imagine the attribution of losses would work up to the blocker. So you could allocate losses to the blocker, but of course it has nowhere else to go after that.
0: Right, but always remember too that U.S. laws will allow a foreign shareholder to elect to be taxed as a US shareholder. So we have rules under our US tax laws that would allow for an election for a foreign corporation to be taxed as a domestic corporation, which would allow you to be able to claim itemized deductions and losses, just like any C corporation, domestic U.S. C corporation would be able to do. Same thing with an individual who's Let's say it's an individual who invested. They could choose to be taxed as a U.S. person if they thought, in that year, it was worth it to be able to utilize the losses that were flowing up through through the blocker corp.
1: That would defeat the purpose of having a blocker. Exactly. The purpose of the blocker is exactly. Exactly.
0: That's it. So it becomes, let's, it's income management then, right? So if we know that the blocker corp is going to have more losses this year, maybe that the engineering of the management, I call it income engineering, would be to create more income, maybe some more different types of income in the blocker corporation. And that I think can be done through a variety of different ways. It's, that's another class, Heidi, I think that we need to do. But you're right, generally, you will not be able to claim the losses. For the, it stops at the blocker corp.
1: And now, looking at the US investor, so let's say the LLC generates a loss of $1 million. 80% of that is then attributed to Hold Co., the US investor's company. So, $800,000 loss arrives at Hold Co. Can this $800,000 loss then be pushed further up to the US investor and be offset against other income?
0: Generally, it would be very hard to do that part of certain structuring things but that's when you get into trouble with the irs so generally the losses are going to be dealt with at the us holdco level for a shareholder to be able to claim losses the shareholder would have to do something with respect to its shares in holdco to recognize a loss, right? So if the shares okay. are at a loss in that year, then maybe that's when you dispose of the shares and claim the loss. But it would be virtually impossible just based on that structure alone without doing any other further engineering for the losses to go up. In fact, I wouldn't recommend it. It's, yes. it's It would Good. not be doable.
1: Under normal circumstances, the losses generated by LLC would be pushed up to Holdco, but would sit there for the U.S. investor. And they would be pushed up to the blocker company and then sit there for the Australian investor. But basically, the two companies are then the end of the loss transfer.
0: Right. But, you know, the U.S. Holdco, the U.S. shareholder could also opt to, I know we we discussed this quickly, could opt to use an S-corp instead of a C-corp as a Holdco. co. Right, And the reason why a US shareholder would be able to do that is because an S corporation is a hybrid entity from a tax perspective. It has tri- attributes of a C corporation and attributes of, of a partnership. And one of these attributes are actually the flow through of losses. However, there are limitations on not all losses will flow through to the US shareholder. Some of those losses will be what we call suspended losses at the uh, S corp level if it's the holdco is an S corp and there are very technical rules on how to determine those uh, suspended losses but at least it would allow you to be able to claim some of the losses at the U.S. shareholder level if it was a hybrid entity like an S corporation and if it started off as a C corporation it can make an election to become an S corporation and then from there it could make an election to become Maybe, an L, you know, a disregarded entity, because as I mentioned, there is no LLC election at the federal level. It doesn't exist. So you either go from C-corporation, S-corporation to disregarded entity, or if there's more than one shareholder to a partnership, but never down
1: to an LLC. That's the journey up through that route. For our Australian investor, the journey definitely ends at the blocker level because that blocker has to be a C-corp and hence that's where the journey ends.
0: That's where the journey ends. Now, to just put one more complexity on this one, Heidi, if for some reason the Australian parent company to the blocker corp has other types of exposure in the U.S., as other types of income such that it, independent of the structure, would be required to file a U.S. tax return, right? Then it could consolidate. You could potentially consolidate the losses, although generally the consolidation at the US level would end at the parent US company. It's uh, just domestic C corporations, and the consolidation would have to be 80%. But I think from an Australian perspective, you could consolidate, but not from a US perspective.
1: You said company at some stage. So you actually say company and corporation, don't you? Because I remember. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, you're right. It really makes no difference to us. It's just slang. The corporation is a more legal company's more slang, right? Like, hey, where's your company? No difference.
1: Why? Some people say LLCs don't work for foreign investors, even when you do have a blocker. Are they right? Because, yeah, that's right if their blocker corporation is based outside of the
0: United States. Now, for many reasons, not tax reasons, you want a blocker corp outside the U.S. if your investor wants privacy, doesn't want to be within the uh, radar of the IRS, would prefer to not file returns in the U.S. Uh, The main difference with a blocker corp that's based in the U.S. and a blocker corp that's based outside of the U.S., is the information reporting that goes along with each entity. Let me break that down. If you have a blocker corp that's based in Delaware and it has a foreign owner, it will be filing a form 5472 annually along with its corporate income tax return. And a 5472 is an information reporting form that discloses the ownership of that Delaware-based blocker corp so you will have the australian company disclosed on u.s tax returns filed by the delaware blocker corp and any what we call reportable transactions occurring between the australian company and the delaware blocker corp will be reportable on a u.s tax return that will be filed by the blocker corp now a blocker corp that's based outside of the united states does not need to disclose under certain circumstances or in generally actually, it's ultimate ownership, which in this case would be the Australian company. It would be the US LLC that will be filing a K-1 with the IRS. A K-1 breaks, uh, basically identifies each partner of the LLC, because in our hypothetical, we're taxing it as a partnership. And then identifies the allocates, the partnership income, losses, credits, all that stuff on a K-1. We call it a K-1 schedule. And that is generally filed along with a partnership tax return, which is a Form 1065. So if you have a blocker corp that's based outside of the United States, the farthest that the information return reporting would go through would be the K-1 would show 20% ownership of a US LLC by the blocker corp that's based outside. It doesn't show, oh, who owns the blocker corp? So you stop the inquiry at the blocker court level outside. So that is one reason why a blocker corp works for certain types of activities and endeavors, who knows what the, some folks don't care about the tax, but they care a lot about privacy and they don't want their name on a US tax return, whether it's not, even if it's just an information reporting return, because it does tend to be very intrusive. Another reason why a blocker corp would work is that for exactly the same reason we were talking about in terms of when you want to exit, right? Let's say you have a blocker corp that owns the 20% ownership in a US LLC. The Australian limited company wants to get out, wants to already cash in, seeing its liquidity, its runway for takeoff. So instead of if you have a blocker corp that's based outside the United States, the Australian company can sell the shares in a blocker corp. Nothing needs to be filed in the U.S. as far as the capital gain, clearly not taxable in the U.S., There's no information form or tax form that you need to file in the US to show that you sold the blocker corp, right? The only filing that's done will be by the US LLC next year to show that the ownership has changed too whoever owns, well, actually not even because the Blocker Corp remains the same. Whereas if you were to sell the Blocker Corp that's a Delaware-based corporation, right? There will be filings, right? Because we want to claim that it's not subject to tax. The capital gain on the shares is not subject to tax in the United States. And we also want to show that there is no withholding due on the capital gain proceeds that are going to be remitted to the Australian corporate parent. So there will be those things. And just to throw in a wrench, Heidi, more further, let's say that this US LLC is a tech startup, but you know, it really liked all of the buildings down in Silicon Valley, so it gobbled up a bunch of real estate so that we're just not dealing with the tech because it's new. The IP, let's say, is only worth like 20% of really what's in there. The 80% of the assets are really real estate so technically what we're getting rid of is us an interest in a us real property holding corporation so that's when things get complicated right but in general assuming we don't have those aggravating conditions of stuffing the company with real estate because maybe the ceo wanted a condo here that was 20 million dollars Having a blocker corp outside is cleaner from a tax reporting perspective, as opposed to having a blocker corp within the US, but having a blocker corp in the US is actually more efficient in terms of US taxes, as opposed to a blocker corp outside the US. So there's wins and losses. I mean, it really ultimately depends on the stage of the company and what they want to do, but we can always restructure. Right. So the good news is you can always restructure to fit any changes in circumstances or goals of the Australian parent company. And let's be honest, most of the time, the structure is going to be dictated by the majority investor. Right. So we have to follow the whims of the majority investor and what works best for them. And since you have a U.S. shareholder as the majority investor here, then we need to structure in a way that is most efficient for the U.S. shareholder. Mm -hmm. which is possibly keeping a blocker corp, Delaware corp.
1: If privacy is no issue, then having a Delaware blocker is fine.
0: Yes, a Delaware blocker, if privacy is no issue, a Delaware blocker is fine. Just know that you will have annual reporting requirements and information reporting that will disclose the ownership outside of the United States. And if you fail to file those forms, there are hefty penalties, $10,000 a piece for failure to file a mere form that's supposed to just report
1: And the form 5472 that only lists the direct shareholders of the blocker, it doesn't list the ultimate shareholders of the Australian entity. So if your Australian entity is basically just another blocker, let's say it's just kind of Asia Pacific holding, then it doesn't really matter. Because you're not disclosing the identity of the ultimate shareholders anyway, all you're disclosing is the identity of the Australian blocker.
0: Yes, yes, because let me just check quickly. I think it's 25% or more. And in fact, for the 5472 requirement for you to be able to to file that, yeah, 25% foreign owned U.S. corporation would be required to file a
1: 5472. Good. And so if our Australian holding holds 100% of the deliver blocker, then it's only our Australian holding that goes onto the 5472.
0: Not just the identity, but also, hey, the 5472 is going to ask, did you have any transactions with this Australian corporation that owns 25% or more of you? Like, what did you do? Did you have loans? Did you have capital, did you have, you know, it, it wants to know if there is what we call reportable transactions between these two entities, because we're always suspecting that you're trying to send income back or repatriate income back to Australia without paying US taxes. So you're going to disguise it as some sort of loan or some sort without, meanwhile, it's really a dividend. So it, all that stuff, but that's, that's more of like a, a more complicated discussion as to when the loan is really a dividend, is really a dividend and not a loan.
1: Yes, actually, that's a very good point. It was mentioned that you should have the Australian holding lodge a declaration that basically says I don't have a PE to get the statute of limitations going. Is that this form 5472 or is that still a different form? No,
0: I love it that you raised this, Heidi, because this is really, really good. Please file a form 1120-F. And 1120-F is a federal income tax return filed by a foreign corporation that is deriving US source income. And in this situation, where the Australian company is really just holding ownership of a blocker corporation that is the one holding the actual ownership of an LLC operating company shares, they're really not doing business in the US. However, what we like to do is you want to assert affirmatively a treaty the treaty, what we call the treaty benefit, that you are not established, you don't have a permanent establishment in the United States, right? As long as you don't have a permanent establishment in the United States, which is provided under the Australia U.S. Income Tax Convention, or I like they call the US Tax Treaty, then you should be able to get income from the United States uh, relatively less complicated on the tax side than one who would be affect what we call a PE, someone with a PE in the US, because then that involves, that, that holds, that, that you're dragging that whole cart then if you have a PE. So an 1120F should be always proactively filed, right? And then it should always claim the form 88, provide the form 8833 to state the basis that you don't
1: have a PE in the US. That form eight eight three. The form eight eight three three. So eighty eight thirty three, the Australian holding in our setup should file a form eleven twenty F plus and double eight double three, basically just saying, yes, we hold an interest, but we're not doing anything. We definitely don't have a PE, and the purpose of this. Filing is to get the statute of limitations going so that if the IAS changes its mind and comes back five years later, they can't roll back the entire five years. Now, mind you, the statute of limitations three years is a general limitation.
0: The IRS can always go beyond the three years if it thinks that the structure was set up for fraud, if the, you know, more exotic claims of tax avoidance and fraud and stuff like that they can always assert that. So in those cases, statute of limitations is told, right? But generally, you want to start that timeline started. And particularly where you are, you may have received some income from your US subsidiary, or maybe some from other sources. But let's say you received income from an independent contractor, or you maybe you You're an independent contractor to a U.S. company and you receive some stuff, but you don't have a P.E., you want to file that 1120F to affirmably flag because the IRS actually started an audit. They launched these international reporting campaigns. It's on the IRS website that tells you which international tax areas they're looking at. And right now, well, actually for the last four years, uh, since the campaign started in 2017, I remember the day it was 2017. They have actually been cracking down on non-compliant 1120 filings, non-compliant 5472 filings. Any of these sound familiar to you in the last couple of minutes that we've been talking about, Heidi? So they are focusing their efforts on these because they know that these are the areas where that's most
1: likely to not have a high tax
0: compliance rate.
1: Given that the U.S. doesn't really have an imputation system, the advantage of using the LLC in this structure is that the income from the LLC or the losses, but let's assume its income, is attributed to the blocker and hold co. at a twenty eighty percent split and hence we don't have double taxation which we would have with the c-corp because if the llc wasn't an llc but a c-corp the c-corp would pay 21 percent tax and then the blocker and hold co would pay 21 percent tax again on their income that's the advantage of using an llc in that structure correct
0: yes and you also have preferential capital gain rates right so the LLC, well, in this case, not really because it's a blocker corpse. There's no preferential cap gains on blockers, but the flow through would also allow you with the ability, the flexibility to claim losses and gains and in income on a more on an allocation basis. So you have more ability to structure in any given year whether you want to get more deductions or not. Theoretically, although as I said, we are subject to US domestic partnership tax rules on how how we can make that happen. Generally, we still have rules to comply by. But that is more flexible because you can't claim the losses if you had it at the corp level, right? So you can at least get the flow through of the losses. So not only do you avoid taxation at the LLC level on income that's generated, you also get a flow through of the losses up to the blocker corp level, which otherwise you won't be able to do if it was a C corporation.
1: The structure C corp, C corp, That is usually popular in the startup world where you don't look at dividend distribution at all. It all is in the end game when you sell the shares in the end. That's when you would see a pure C-Corp structure. But when you are more into a kind of a normal business where you have ongoing business relationships, ongoing dividends, ongoing profit, then it makes more sense to have an LLC and then C-Corp Structure because then you can attribute the income up and you don't have this double taxation between various C-corp levels.
0: Yeah. And usually this is just a natural progression in the stage of a startup, Heidi. So usually you would have a startup with an, an LLC when it, during the first initial funding rounds because it's easier, more flexible for all the reasons we discussed, flow through of incomes and losses. But as you get ready to maybe get your if you want to go public or you get acquired by a private equity fund, it depends on what your which route you're going to take. If you're going to go public, the that LLC will need to convert to a corporation at some point in time, right? Because then if you as a public corporation you're going to be regulated by the SEC and all those, we have a securities and enforcement commission here, you're regulated more highly regulated, but there are also benefits to being a public corporation if you're acquired by a private equity, then they might want you to stay as an LLC because then private equity is almost like, you know, startup ventures anyway. So they want the flexibility to restructure at any given point in time. So the LLC usually is just a start a starting base a structure for an, a business that wants to expand in the United States. But I wanna qualify that by saying, if you're a foreign business that wants to expand in the United States, it would be very smart to structure a blocker corp from the very beginning to just prevent any potential attribution of income to the ultimate parent in Australia. However, as the business progresses and expands, and then you you get to have potentials for financing and expanding more to get more capital in the United States, you may want to consider an LLC underneath the blocker corp because then that's more likely the structure or the vehicle that your
1: US investors are more familiar with investing in. So you're saying actually you could also if if it was just you, if you didn't have a US partner, you could also just start with the uh, Blocker Corp, just with the Blocker Corp. Yeah, just with the Blocker Corp and then
0: as you go around and develop the business further and more potential financing opportunities come up, you will you can set up the LLC later on and then you'll have that'll be the financing vehicle, right? Then that will be the one that will get the investors and the investors will buy into here in the United States. Because from a a US investor perspective, we also don't want US investors to be investing in foreign entities to fund a US company. You know, we'd we'd like to keep everything here in the US because there's very uh, adverse US tax rules for US persons and US shareholders who invest in foreign corporations
1: and foreign entities abroad. And these adverse consequences are just that they have to file a fifty-four seventy-one. Oh no, no,
0: no, Heidi! It goes down the rabbit hole. That's not that is just merely not even the top of the top of the glacial barrel of the iceberg, as we say. Uh, No, it's way, way much more than that. And it's I'm not joking about it. It's like really, really bad. So we we want to keep everything as U.S. investors to invest in U.S.-based entities rather than foreign-based entities.
1: Consolidated filing. I understand that when you hold 80% or more, you can consolidately file. Is that option only between C corps or could an LLC also consolidately file with a C corp or even even with an individual? Well, if the
0: LLC is taxed as a corporation or it made an uh, election to be treated or taxed as a corporation, then technically you could include it in a consolidated return. But if not, then no it has it generally is just c corporations and it's been a while since i last looked at the consolidated filing regulations but it was my thesis so we're only allowed to consolidate at the parent level of a u.s parent we can't do foreign corporations right we can't do certain types of trusts. we can't have there's a lot of exceptions right we can't do s corporations because it's an affiliate it's a different It's a different, as I mentioned, it's a hybrid entity. So the basis for all of this is really the definition for an affiliated group. So it has to be a chain of corporations that are linked together through common stock ownership, and you're right, the ownership has to be 80% or more for each of the, what we call the includable corporations in the group. So that is done by usually you do that in the first year as you grow the the u.s corporate structure for a foreign for like the australian entity so as entities are being formed underneath it then the 1120 which is the u.s corporate tax return will start to include the 1120s of all those other corporations
1: Okay, so as a sum of rule, you can consolidate when you hold 80% or more, but you can usually only consolidate between C-Corps, putting an LLC that made a corporate election, putting that aside, you usually only consolidate between C-Corps where you have at least 80% ownership between them.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not usually, you have to. Well, you can, but you, if, it's not, if it's less than 80%, you can't, and it has to be a domestic corporation.
1: Yes, and apologies if I said have to. I, I meant, yes, you can. Yes, we can, we can. I think I, I was the one who
0: said have to, but yeah,
1: generally that would be it. Yeah, so... and the
0: last thing you want to know also about just from an LLC, before I forget, Heidi, sorry to cut <laughs> in on you, is that if you are the minority shareholder of a US LLC, which in our structure, the Australian parent is, right? The reason why you want to choose the state of incorporation for this LLC is because you want to make sure that the state statute for this LLC gives you minority shareholder rights, or gives you substantial, well-developed, well-litigated minority shareholder rights, right? So Delaware has been a favorite for many because it does that. It has a well-developed statutes on LLC, minority shareholder rights. It has special courts that address only issues between, we have. they have special different types of courts that don't exist anywhere in the U.S. because they're so specialized that deal with these shareholder derivative litigation, shareholder litigation and stuff like that. So the corporate basis is you need to choose the state that not only gives you a zero percent tax, but also has a well-developed corporate litigation case law on minority shareholder rights, if you're the minority shareholder.
1: Are minority shareholders more exposed in an LLC than in a C-Corp? I wouldn't
0: say so. I think they're both equally exposed because they're not the majority shareholder, right? But the minority shareholder in an LLC, I think would have more exposure because it's a flow through, right? So if there's income that's being trapped and reallocated to the majority shareholder, that minority shareholder is not receiving that income. Although if you think about it, the C-Corp would be the same way because the C-Corp can make a special dividend distribution out to a majority shareholder and not minority shareholder. So I think... Just because you're a minority shareholder, you're 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 particularly sensitive, regardless of whether you're in a C corp or in an LLC, which is a yeah. minority partner.
1: But is it that the C corp is a lot more regulated, hence it protects minority shareholders more than an LLC? That in an LLC, it comes down very much to the wording of the partnership agreement, etc. Well, there is what we call the
0: Uniform Partnership Act that many of the states have have adopted. So it gives Limited partnerships—it's called the ROLPA, and I'm—I'm—it's evading me what R stands for, but it's the Uniform Limited Partnership Act in the states that are adopted in different states, and it provides a uniform set of rights for limited partners and partners, uh, general partners in a partnership. So the basis is different. I think the corporate shareholders have more well-developed shareholder rights, only because the corporation has been around for a long, long time. And so there's a bigger body of case law dealing with derivative and shareholder minority shareholder rights as opposed to an LLC, which is, a, which is taxed as a corporation because it's piggybacking off of the RULPA or the Uniform Limited Partnership Act or whatever else is provided to it under state law. Whereas a corporation can be just has a more robust protection because it exists under federal law and exists under from a traditional perspective. So I think it's a minority shareholder C-Corp is actually more protected in that way, because you have to piggyback off several laws for an LLC states and different types of uniform partnership agreements to kind of piece together the rights of a minority partner. It's very state specific.
1: We spoke about the minority shareholder rights and that Delaware has a very well-developed minority LLC rights regime. What about California? Is California a good place to register an LLC? You're shaking your head. If you are an international business
0: and you're thinking of generating income, not just from California, but from all around the world, I would maintain your flexibility by making it first a Delaware LLC. Now, if you're doing business in California, then you will have to register anyway. But remember, California does not have as developed LLC legislation and rules as Delaware does. In fact, I think I was a young tax associate in my first law firm here in San Francisco when the LLC statutes and tax stuff just came out in California. So it's not that old as Wyoming or everything else. California also does what we call a combined unitary taxation, which means that, remember, we talked about consolidated filing, Heidi, whereby if it's a consolidated return, you can only file for U.S. corporate parent and all the other C corporations that are owned 80% by that chain of ownership. California does worldwide. So California has its own consolidated return filing requirements that you can elect to, but technically, once you establish taxability or what we call a nexus in California, California could theoretically require the Australian parent to file California tax returns. One of my first cases, Heidi, that I remember and that forever seared in my brain, California worldwide combined unitary taxation was the taxation of the parent was in the UK. It was a music recording group, very big. You will know it. And uh, they had maybe just two subsidiaries here in the US. I spent six months of my young associate life sorting through the combined unitary returns to just show that this the uk parent and its subsidiaries outside of california should not be taxed by california so just as a word of warning california is a whole different ball of mess that you don't want to get into we also tax uh, combined worldwide unitary so in delaware you get zero tax right you just pay a franchise fee but lse's don't get taxed unless you do you just do a corporate filing fee because we don't tax on interest, but we tax on par value in Delaware. California doesn't, has a tax. It it is isn't a zero tax state. So when you're a startup, you want to maintain flexibility. Start up first in Delaware or in Nevada, but I like Delaware most of all, before you expand operations to another state. You know, test the waters. Instead of like, cutting your nose off despite your face by starting a California LLC.
1: So that means not just only your blocker, but also the LLC should be registered in Delaware. The LLC should be formed in Delaware. Yes.
0: Yeah. So the Delaware Corp. will be incorporated in Delaware. The LLC will be incorporated in Delaware. And then depending on which states it ends up doing business in, then you register on a state by state basis that it becomes required. So that would be a a stitch in time saves nine again. Don't be too eager to come to California too fast. Just let's get your structure set up and in the least taxing states as possible. So basically the U.S. is always happy to welcome foreign uh, companies that want to expand in the U.S. But it's not always a 100% welcome. Just know that we have a very extraterritorial tax regime as I call it, that is not like any other country in the world, except for Eritrea, apparently. And that means that once you establish a U.S. presence here in the United States, you may find yourself subject to the same tax regime that other U.S. persons and U.S. entities are subject to, and you won't like it. So it. As they say, a stitch in time saves nine. And usually when you have an Australian business that wants to expand to the U.S., you just want to get here. But I highly recommend that you take the time to plan your operation, vet out the structure with your Australian tax advisors and your cross-border advisors. Take the time to structure it correctly, like by establishing a blocker corp to insulate your Australian company from any Inadvertent adverse US tax exposures, because once you establish a permanent establishment in the United States inadvertently it's very hard. To to you know dial that down right the irs enforcement machine will be on you and it will be very difficult, it will be an uphill battle, so please remember when it comes to expanding to the US a stitch in time always saves nine. And I would highly recommend that you think very carefully about the length of exposure, the type of investments you want, and so that we can continue your success when you get here to the US by making sure you're not taxed to, you're not subject to too much taxation at the federal level, at the international level, based on US international tax rules. And more importantly, and we haven't discussed it Heidi yet, but at the state and local tax level too. So, you know, but you're always welcome. We love Aussies to come here.
1: Welcome back. So I will try to put this into very easy recipes for you to use, but please don't hold me onto it. It's just what I took away, what is my understanding of this episode. So if you don't have a U.S. partner and enter the U.S. alone, then you could just use a C-Corp within the US. If you do have a partner and privacy is an issue, then you use a C-Corp within the US and a blocker outside the US, for example, in the Cayman Islands. If you have a US partner and privacy is no issue, then you use an LLC with a Delaware blocker. And in all this, you most likely would also use an Australian holding company as another blocker within Australia. When it comes to sell your US C-Corp blocker or your US C-Corp shares, the capital gain is not taxable in the US and the capital gain is also reduced or exempt in Australia if you hold at least 10% in an active business. But remember that you face top-up tax upon distribution of these capital gains to the ultimate shareholders. Tomorrow in US number 11, we will look at Australian loans to US entities. If you want to loan from your Australian holding to a US entity, how should you structure this? And that will be a much shorter episode than the one you had to endure today. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.